Hello, happy holidays, and welcome to JobsCast. Today is December 24th, 2021, and the conversation you're about to hear with Ashley Kersner was recorded on October 25th. Ashley is the founder of Skip the Small Talk, an ongoing event series that promotes meaningful conversation between strangers using question prompts that are grounded in psychological research. Skip the Small Talk is described on its website as being like speed dating without the speed and without the dating. I realized when editing our conversation that I didn't ask Ashley to provide examples of what actually gets talked about at these events, so I'll share some now. Imagine you're sitting at the end of a picnic table at a brewery with another human being seated across from you, and you have an allotted time, controlled by a moderator, to speak and then to listen about questions like, describe the kind of person you would like to be, what things are you already doing that are consistent with that version of yourself, what are some things you're proud of that you don't usually get to share with people. If you could go back in time to meet yourself when you were 10 years old and could give them one piece of advice, what would it be? You see, deep talk, skipping the small talk. I've attended four of these events in my life and I found them all to be amazing. There are currently events on Zoom as well as some in-person options, though Ashley and I spoke before Omicron became a thing, so check the website for the latest updates. In our conversation, Ashley and I discussed the origins of Skip the Small Talk and how she chose a self-invented occupation over the PhD road, how she adapted Skip the Small Talk for the pandemic, the paradoxical dynamic that is Gen Y and Gen Z being the most connected and loneliest generations alive. I lead Ashley off on a tangent about the MBTI, and on that journey we discuss fundamental attribution error which, according to a Harvard Business School website I just pulled up, refers, quote, to an individual's tendency to attribute another's actions to their character or personality while attributing their behavior to external situational factors outside of their control. In other words, you tend to cut yourself a break while holding others 100% accountable for their actions, end quote. Then Ashley and I discuss how, in a context of intimate conversation, judging a book by its cover, reliably produces an inaccurate picture of another person. We talk about friendship formation and the relationship alcohol plays for so many Americans in their teens and 20s. We discuss the assumptions people make and whether they're reasonable and about how friend and romantic relationships are sparked and whether in relationships it might be preferable to have similar interests versus similar values. We explore a recently published research paper on Skip the Small Talk that bears out its health effects. We discuss the meaning of community. Ashley provides a very interesting definition as social safety net. And we talk about the science of group feels and how community projects like Skip the Small Talk are helping fill the community hole left by the disappearance of religion and how looking forward the best of religion could possibly be retained and the worst of it retired. We even touch on a few job-related matters. I finally got around to some titular content. We examine what it's like to turn a project into a business and handle growing pains and opportunities. And finally, we talk about the social awkwardness and rustiness people are feeling since the pandemic began. As some of you may know, author, professor, feminist, and activist Bell Hooks passed away nine days ago. I'm just about finished reading her book titled All About Love, New Visions. And I was actually planning on reaching out to her to see if she might want to come on the show. If you're unfamiliar with her work, do look it up. She's incredible. In her memory, I wanted to remind everyone that in order to be in community with others, we have to feel connected. And to feel connected, we have to feel seen. And in order to feel seen, we have to practice vulnerability.
And at every step of the way, we have to love. As unbearably corny and cliched as it may sound, love and community are always the answers. And I'd like to read just a little bit from Bell Hooks' book about these topics. Bell Hooks takes her definition of love from the writer and psychiatrist M. Scott Peck, who in his 1978 book defines love as the will to extend one's self for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. And then Hooks writes, To truly love, we must learn to mix various ingredients, care, affection, recognition, respect, commitment, and trust, as well as honest and open communication. Hooks writes that communities sustain life, not nuclear families or the couple, and certainly not the rugged individualist. There's no better place to learn the art of loving than in community. Again, she goes on to quote Peck, who says, In and through community lies the salvation of the world. Peck defines community as the coming together of a group of individuals who have learned how to communicate honestly with each other, whose relationships go deeper than their masks of composure, and who have developed some significant commitment to rejoice together, mourn together, and to delight in each other, and make others' conditions our own. Final share of hooks I'll leave you with. When we see love as the will to nurture one's own or another's spiritual growth, revealed through acts of care, respect, knowing, and assuming responsibility, the foundation of all love in our life is the same. There is no special love exclusively reserved for romantic partners. Genuine love is the foundation of our engagement with ourselves, with family, with friends, with partners, with everyone we choose to love. While we will necessarily behave differently depending on the nature of a relationship or have varying degrees of commitment, the values that inform our behavior when rooted in a love ethic are always the same for any interaction. Okay, I now present my conversation with Ashley Kersner. Ashley, welcome to JobsCast. Thank you so much. Very excited to be on the podcast after hearing a few awesome episodes. Great. Honored to have you. So, Ashley, you started something called Skip the Small Talk. What is Skip the Small Talk? Yeah. So for a little bit of context, um, I know a lot of people think that millennials and Gen Zers are super well connected because everyone's on social media and has a million Facebook friends. But it turns out, according to research, that millennials and Gen Zers are actually the loneliest two generations alive. Mm. So because of that, I decided to start this thing called Skip the Small Talk, where basically we make millennials and Gen Zers have meaningful conversations with each other. So we host events in breweries, bookstores, cafes, places like that. Um, we also do online events now, and um, we basically have people use these question prompts that we've designed based in psychology research. And we use a structure that's also based in some research that's all designed to basically get people talking about stuff that really matters to them, get people to be a little bit more vulnerable than they might otherwise, which leads to more deep connections. So that's sort of where we're at. You mentioned that it's geared toward millennials and Gen Z, but it doesn't exclude other generations, right? Exactly. So I sort of started this more on accident than really on purpose. And we just sort of, because of the nature of my own friend group, it was mostly folks in their 20s and 30s who show up. But we definitely have people on either side of that age range showing up. And we're also hopefully um, planning to, at some point, include events that are specifically for folks who are older than that, as well as folks who are younger than that. Got it. It seems that we maybe need to update the dictionary 
and create a new word because, as you said, we are, you and I being millennials, and we're including Gen Z here, the loneliest generations and yet the most connected. How can we be the most connected if we're the loneliest? <laughs> it, it feels like the digital connection. Maybe we need to put that prefix, digit connected. What do you think? Any, yeah. any suggestions for Miriam Webster? Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's such a misnomer. You know, I think <laughs> LinkedIn tries to fool us by telling us how many connections we have. <laughs> Facebook calls it friends. You know, I think there's all this language making it out to seem that these are like real actual social connections that fulfill the same psychological needs as having a real friend or having a real life connection. But in reality, that's just over and over again, we're finding that's not the case. And there are a lot of researchers who are looking at this now. I think Dr. Sherry Turkle at MIT wrote this book called, I believe, Alone Together, um, as well as a couple other books, if I'm remembering correctly. And, you know, she talks about how the digital world has really led us to feel a lot less connected to each other, because while we have a greater number of connections, the quality of those connections is a lot lower than it has been in the past. Makes sense. So, Ashley, how was the first Skip the Small Talk event? Tell us about <laughs> day one of the formal operation. Yeah, so um, basically, I had decided to post this thing on Facebook. I called it the Skip the Small Talk Dinner. I figured I would pair it with dinner because in case the event itself sucked, at least people would know they'd get food with it. <laughs> you know, I expected maybe a few friends to show up out of pity because, um, again, all I did was post it to Facebook. But before I knew it, we had hundreds of people interested. Um, we sold out at 50 tickets weeks in advance. So what I thought was going to be like a 10 person picnic where I could just get like a single loaf of bread and some turkey and call it a day. Instead, it was like, you know, a huge park full of folks. And it was so cool. I got a ton of friends to sort of help out last minute because it was way more people than I'd expected to wow. handle myself. And um, yeah, we basically used these question prompts that I'd printed out in, on slips of paper. Now we have a little more official cards, but at the time it was just stuff like print out on paper. And they were all questions sort of designed to get people talking about internal states as opposed to necessarily just facts about themselves. And it was supposed to be, I believe, like a two or three hour long event. And I had to kick people out after seven hours because people just kept talking to each other. And, you know, at the time it was like just such a unique Thing that people didn't really have a space for in, unless you like called the suicide hotline, which is where I actually worked at the time or had a therapist. Like there weren't really spaces like this where you could just talk to a peer about kind of whatever you want and also have like these prompts to sort of bring out these deeper topics. So people seemed to really like it. They asked me when the next one would be. And then I had this big crisis where I was deciding whether I wanted to go to grad school or if I wanted to pursue Skip a Small Talk and ultimately decided to pursue Skip a Small Talk. That's incredible that the first event was such a marathon. I mean, yeah. what, a, what a sign from the universe and more specifically your friends and friends of friends, yeah. I guess, that uh, this was a not only a viable project, but something that people would find great meaning in. I'm imagining when people saw the, the Facebook invite initially, probably a lot of people thought, this is weird. And yeah. I think that I think that this is weird as like a, a statement or a knee-jerk response that often gives way to like, oh, this really punctures normalcy in a mm -hmm. fascinating and deep way. So that's super cool that you followed that. Share a little more detail, Ashley, about how, so you mentioned that you were working on a suicide hotline and you did this event five years ago. You were thinking about grad school, but this took on a life of its own. So how many more events did you do before it became clear that you really wanted to commit yourself to this 
Honestly, after that first event, that was enough. I even had someone at the end of it ask me like, okay, when's the next one? And um, I was like, oh, I'm not really intending to do the next one to do any more. Like I'm really planning on going to grad school. And she was like, well, I think you should really reconsider that. <laughs> and she was like, look around you. Like there's a demand for this. Like you could do this if you wanted to. So I sort of went home and like, you know, called up some of my best friends and asked for some like heartfelt advice and like did a lot of talking. And eventually, I mean, this is sort of <laughs> one of the most intense things I've done, but I ended up writing pros and cons for going to grad school, pros and cons for doing super small talk. And I ended up handwriting 40 pages front and back <laughs> about wow. pros and cons. Yep. I've never done that before or since. And then the even wilder thing that I did after that was that I went through all of the pros and cons. And I ended up coding each one in terms of either something I wanted to listen to or something I didn't. And I also, while I was coding it, noticed patterns like, oh, these are all fear-based reasons, or these are all like clout-based reasons, or these are all like, you know, reasons that are related to my purpose and feeling like I'm having an impact on the world. And then it was sort of easy to be like, oh, well, it looks like most of my cons for Skip the Small Talk are fear-based. And I'm not sure that's as much a thing as I want to listen to as some of the other things. So yeah, at that point, and after some like heartfelt conversations with friends who were like, it seems like you really want to do this. You should frame those 40 pages of pros and cons and uh, hang them at Skip the Small Talk events. <laughs> oh, I totally should. Uh, I have <laughs> do you still yeah. have them? I must somewhere. There's no way I would have thrown it away, but... I think they're sort of like at a under a pile of papers, but hopefully I'll dig them up. I think I do get sentimental whenever I come across <laughs> like cleaning my room. <laughs> I know that, of course, there were a lot more pros and cons than this, but I'm guessing clout was a big one on the yeah. pro for grad school. Yep. And meaning was a big one on the pros for um, running with Skip to Small Talk. Yeah. It's, it's a courageous thing you did. I give you a lot of credit. Listeners may not know that you studied psychology at Cornell, so coming from a top-notch school, I would imagine that there was some pressure to keep doing great in mm -hmm. uh, a conventional manner uh, in, in ways that are sort of predictable in a way and also readily validated by everyone who said, oh, good, you're getting a PhD at Harvard or, or wherever. Right. Um, and you, you know, you completely flouted that and started a thing that is just sui generis. It's completely its own thing. I, I have nothing to compare it to. And I've been a handful of times and I and I love it. And that's Aw, thank you. Yeah, yeah, of course. So it, it's just it's just very cool. So let's talk a little bit about how Skip the Small Talk got through the pandemic. And I'll just speak a little from my own experience. Part of why I love Skip the Small Talk, there are a lot of reasons, but you interact with strangers and it's an event that is extremely successful at making strangers much less strange. <laughs> you <laughs> you connect that. with people quickly and meaningfully. I also think, do you know the word sonder? Have you ever yes. heard of this term? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah it's for, for those who don't know, it's um, this comes from John Koenig's book, The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. This is a neologism, an invented word. Sonder is the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. Yeah. Skip the small talk induces Sonder in a major way. <laughs> and I just, that's just, uh, it, it's very much, it's uh, very much up my alley. Thank um, you. I love that. Sonder inducing is definitely going to be a phrase I start using. For, oh, cool. Great. I appreciate that. Please use it. Great. <laughs> so yeah, those things are 
complicated by moving into a digital format, I would mm-hmm. imagine. So yeah. so how did it go? How did you transition into digital and how are you transitioning back into analog? Yeah, so for sure, super different. And, you know, as we were sort of talking, I also realized I want to sort of go back and mention, while it definitely did feel like, you know, it was a leap of faith to sort of go to skip a small talk, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't mention, like, I also am very lucky to have a ton of privilege to be able to do that. I've read so many things that are like, well, like, entrepreneurs don't have courage, they just have money. And like, <laughs> for sure, both. For, I definitely feel like both is required. And I know that, like, you know, if I were in a different position, I probably wouldn't be able to pursue skip the small talk, even if I were like, you know, had the same amount of passion and excitement. So also want to just like, you know, I try and keep myself in check about that on the regular. So that's something I also want to sort of mention. I really appreciate you including that. And I just want to echo it because part of the reason I think I'm able to have this show is because I was lucky to not have college debt. My Mm -hmm. parents prioritized paying for pricey undergrad tuition. Mm -hmm. And that enabled me to accept a job at a nonprofit cultural center where I made $10 an hour teaching ESL nine years ago. And I gradually parlayed that into a, a somewhat more remunerative career and, and one that I've been able to have some amount of success at. And I also set my own schedule these days. And all of those things I do think are outgrowths of, of some fundamental privilege that I've enjoyed too. So there's always the risk of the kind of like virtue signaling of like, oh, yes. we have to account for our privilege. But I just think that these are facts. I just think that these are like, I don't feel that either of us are doing that. I think that these are facts to acknowledge. Yeah, yeah totally. there's just like a part of my heart that tugs whenever like, you know, I get too entrenched in the like courage narrative that's like, oh, that's mm. not the whole story. So yeah, I, I totally appreciate that. But yeah, um, sort of back to your other question about the pandemic pandemic, um, because that definitely changed things quite a bit. As soon as I heard about the pandemic and that um, I think lockdown had just started happening and I had an event scheduled for like, you know, maybe a few days after the lockdown was set to start. And I just remember making announcements everywhere saying like, this is going to be going online. So just like follow us. If you want a refund, that's totally cool. Otherwise plan to like, you know, meet online. At the time that I did that, I had no idea how I was going to do that or what it was going to look like. So eventually, you know, I learned a lot of lessons over the course of the pandemic, like, you know, two and a half hour in-person event does not translate to a two and a half hour online event. Oh, yeah. I found myself just totally drained. And then I started asking people afterwards, like, are you guys just like dying? Like, (laughs) it was fun and satisfying, but do you just need like an eight hour nap right now? And, you know, people sort of confirmed that suspicion. And so we ended up making it a lot shorter. But aside from that, I've actually found that if anything, the online events are like kind of even more comfortable than the in-person events because you're doing it from your couch. You already have this sense of like, you know, a secure space. Like I think very subconsciously you feel a little safer and you feel a little more comfortable. So I think people are a little more open to opening up. And I think also just the ability to like be a little more distant from this person such that if things go weird, you can always just go off the Zoom call and pretend that you had tech issues. I think the fact that there's just an easy out and you don't have to make a whole to-do and make an excuse for why you don't want to be in this conversation with this person, I think that allows you to actually go in deeper and be, you know, just allow yourself to see what happens if you talk to a bunch of strangers because, you know, in your head, worst case scenario, you can duck out. And people don't, ironically. Like, I think that, like, because you have that freedom, people often tend to enjoy it. It's very rare that someone will just duck out. So that's been cool to see. 
Have you heard from anyone whether it going online actually increased access for some people who have a little bit of social anxiety and maybe yes. don't want to do that kind of intense across the table eye contact for an extended yes. period of time? Yes, big time. And what's been so cool is seeing people who started off on online events, they would self-disclose that they have intense social anxiety and were really nervous about going to the in-person events. And then I'll see them at like five online events and then I'll see them in person, which is just the coolest <laughs> thing to see them sort of like create their own like cognitive behavioral therapy exposure program, basically. I was going like... yeah, it's like a small stretch and then it gets them to the in-person exactly. event. That's great. Yeah. Exactly. So like it seems to work and it's been cool to see. And I know there's also been like more accessible to people who like have more trouble like getting out of the house or have more like mobility issues. Um, and so a whole host of accessibility barriers have just come down with that. So that's been like really great and definitely something that I feel very committed to keeping around just because our whole goal is to like reach people who might not otherwise have easy access to like social connections that are meaningful. And so some of the like most isolated folks around are those who like have existing barriers to other social events. So if we can reach that population and if we can do that with online events, that's awesome. And I'm definitely keeping them around. So um, where are you at at present now? Are there some in-person events again, or is it still totally remote? Yep, we're doing a mix. We have a bunch of uh, in-person events. We're sort of back to normal with that, quote, COVID normal. We're talking like, you know, vax cards, um, plus masking, plus just being careful in general. And aside from that, we're also doing those online events. So yeah, I feel like we're sort of at where we're going to be long-term, hopefully longer term, it will be fewer masks and no vax cards. Yeah, I feel like we're at the, our normal cadence. How has the in-person turnout been with masks and uh, vaccination cards? Same as before the pandemic? Smaller? Bigger? I've actually been shocked to see that it's bigger. Oh, wow. Great. Um, I was like looking at the numbers um, the other day just to make sure it wasn't in my head. I was just so surprised that like it feels like people are just like so, so ready to socialize and get out there. And as long as something feels like safe enough, people seem like pretty willing to do it. And I mean, you know, safety is also such a relative thing because suicide rates have gone up substantially during the pandemic. And that's in no small part because social isolation. So, you know, you're sort of weighing COVID safety and like mental health safety. You know, of course, it's always a fine dance to take them both into account. But if we think we can be safe enough, I feel highly motivated to make sure these events continue in one form or another, kind of no matter what's happening. Mm, yeah. What would you say, Ashley, are some of the challenges, surprises, joys of a job that always involves a new cast of characters? Yeah, you know, I think some of the best things to come of it, I definitely feel like I've learned so, so much about human nature just by seeing people in social situations over and over and over and over again. And I think so many of the psych research findings that I've been aware of and have sort of lightly believed in my past now that I just see it like a hundred times a year, like it's e much easier for me to sort of internalize that. For instance, like at events, I've noticed that like after people have their first conversation, I always ask people an anonymous poll and I ask them whether how they felt about how much they shared and how they felt about how vulnerably their partner shared. And really consistently people really are content with how much their partner shared. So even at events where people disclose that like they feel like they overshared, they're afraid that their partner thought they were weird for saying this thing. Time and time again, we have zero hands go up when we ask who felt like their partner overshared. So 
that's been so incredible to see that like people's perceptions about how vulnerably they can share are really consistently and predictably off. And like, that's not to say oversharing doesn't exist. Like I think in a context where like there aren't boundaries and like you're expected to support this person, you're expected to like do some action for them. I think that's a totally different story. But I think in a setting where you're really just, your only job is to listen to someone. And also, you know, just the joy of seeing on people's faces, their delight after I report that. Cause like, there's always a few people who secretly feel like they overshared and you know, their face is just like, you know, you can see the relief (laughs) and delight on their faces. Um, which is very fun to see. So that's definitely one of the highlights. And I think also just seeing people with social anxiety just come back time and time again, the way they interact with me changes. I can see it firsthand that they'll start off sort of, you know, obviously more anxious. And then over time, they get more and more comfortable and more and more confident. And it's just so cool to see that like, all you have to do is just keep showing up and which, you know, is easy for me to say, you know, harder to do. But if you can manage that one thing that the system just sort of takes care of it for you and you do end up with reduced social anxiety over time, which is very cool. So those are definitely some of the joys. And I'd say some of the harder parts are that sometimes people act out their anxiety by like being a little more aggressive, especially like being aggressive to folks that they know, like aren't able to necessarily fight back. So like, Like I, you know, Mm. my heart goes out to like all the customer service people out there and all the like retail workers and (laughs) restaurant workers. This is sort of no different where like this is a quote, you know, safe place for people to act out. And fortunately, I haven't really had reports of people acting out on other guests. So like I much prefer being that target than the guests. But for sure, people will sometimes sort of complain in a way that seems less productive and more just like a way to sort of release some anger. Although, you know, I take all feedback very seriously. And even if someone does report something with a lot of anger, like I do still look into it, but it definitely has like been a process for me to like take things less personally and develop much better boundaries to sort of separate like, okay, this sounds like you are feeling this way. And it seems like you are asking me for this thing. And I'm responsible for giving you that thing if I can, but I am not responsible for like absorbing your anxiety or anger or like whatever it is. So that's definitely been a learning process for me. And it's been such a relief to have gotten a lot better at it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How often do people become repeat visitors, guests, patrons versus people who tend to sort of do it as a one-off experience? Yeah, the very cool thing is apparently the majority of folks, it was above 50%. I forget the exact number, maybe around 60% of folks who come one time will go at least a second time. Oh, cool. So yeah, that's been very cool to see. And like, you know, personally, every so often I'll see someone like at an event for their first time. And I like try and judge from their facial expressions, like if they're having a good time. And I feel like when I was first starting, I would sort of make the assumption of like, oh, everyone hated it. I just know it. And then I would see them come back the next week. So I think it's nice to have actual data so that, you know, I'm not in my head about it anymore. <laughs> yeah. One's mood becomes one's reality and that gets projected yes. out quite quickly. Uh, that's so perfectly said. Yes. That's also a big lesson I've learned with Skip the Small Talk. One's mood becomes one's reality. <laughs> I have so many times where I've just, because I was anxious hosting the event, I've assumed that other people weren't having a good time and weren't liking it. 
And then, you know, it's the exact people who I'm like, oh my God, this person is like grimacing every time I talk. They must be having a miserable time. And they come <laughs> up to me afterwards and say like, oh, this is so great. I was in such a bad mood, but this was really helpful. <laughs> it's really fascinating how generous people can be to others. This is loosely related, but when you were talking before, I was thinking about how people rated the willingness to share and be vulnerable on the part of their interlocutors pretty highly, in general, higher than they rated themselves. My girlfriend, Rosie, and I, we recently did Myers-Briggs tests. And the last time I did it was three years ago. And I, I guess I've changed a little bit, which they say happens. I Last time I did it, I was uh, an ENFJ, and now I'm an ENFP. Uh-huh. And what was interesting is I wanted to do a, a little kind of experiment where I thought it would be interesting if we both took the we took the test on 16personalities.com if anyone wants to go out there and try it and they also include a fifth dimension that matches the neuroticism big 5 personality trait so you could either be mm. T for turbulent or A for assertive so in my case oh. I was an ENF PT, which is turbulent. And anyway, I I thought it would be interesting if Rosie and I took the test ourselves, answering the questions as normal participants, and then took it again, guessing what we think the other person would put for themselves. And it was like a survey format where it's like, agree completely, strongly agree, agree a little, neutral, disagree a little, strongly disagree, completely disagree. And there were so many questions where I really got caught up between idealization and actual behavior, where I would read Mm. the question. And I think the my reading was that the question is asking what gets done. Ultimately, it's a a behavioral questionnaire. But the way some of the questions were written, I was thinking, oh, like, I'm really like committed to being this person in my mind, but I'm definitely not in the way Mm -hmm. that I do things so often. But (laughs) what I'm getting at here is that we were both really confident and quick in answering for the other person, as (laughs) opposed to answering for ourselves. And there's just something connected here where there's there's like a kind of confidence and generosity when it comes to sort of looking at and judging others. And I'm not sure what to make of that, but I thought I'd just, I don't know, present that to you. What, what do you think? <laughs> wow. So, okay, my question is, were you, when you were sort of guessing for each other, do you think on average you were like doing it more consistently with like the sort of idealized version of each other or more consistently with like the behavioral version of each other? So we we did talk about that briefly, and we both agreed with both sets of questions. So the ones that we were guessing for the other person and the ones for ourselves to try to do it more behaviorally. So we at least tried to control for that. But Uh even still, uh I sort of got tangled up at times thinking about that. Yeah, it definitely makes me think of the fundamental attribution error, if I'm remembering correctly. And it's basically that you see yourself as a sort of more like mushy entity. Anything you do is really more based on circumstance. Basically, anything negative you do, I think, is more you attribute to more circumstances. Whereas for other people, you tend to attribute things to more like static traits. So Mm. I sort of wonder if this is like a version of that happening in action. But also there's a halo effect thing that happens with people we care about and people we Mm. love dearly. Where like if you think someone's great at one thing, you think they're great at everything. I wonder if that's also sort of in play. And yeah, I see what you mean about like the sort of connection between this and how people are at Skip the Small Talk. Oftentimes people come in to Skip the Small Talk feeling post-2016 pretty jaded about humans. Yeah. Um, and I'd be lying if I said I never felt that way in my <laughs> life. 
For sure, I think it's easy to sort of assume people don't really understand your point of view, you know, just assuming that others are going to be quick to ostracize you. And then if you go to Escape the Small Talk, I've found that like people actually tend to have that pretty directly challenged. And I feel like that's even happened for myself. I used to like actually participate in these every so often when we had an odd number of people. I can't do it anymore because my voice doesn't really allow for it anymore. But back in the day, I would jump in. And often when I was jumping in, I would think to myself, I would make assumptions. I would be like, oh, this person's totally going to not really leave room for me to talk or like, oh, this person's (laughs) totally just going to talk about themselves or like, oh, this person isn't going to get this thing, but I guess I'll just share it anyway. And literally 100% of the time, without exception, my assumptions were challenged. There was always someone who I expected to be not understanding of my feelings, and they would actually be like the most empathetic person that night. I would expect somebody to be just kind of a bro in like all the stereotypical bro ways um, and just, you know, not really have much depth. And then they would talk very intelligently about some trauma that's happened to them. And so like... I just sort of over time keep learning the lesson that like putting people in boxes just super doesn't work. And it's just such a refreshing lesson to learn over and over again right now when I think it is so easy to be like jaded about people and just, you know, it just turned into a joke when people just all the time will say like, I just hate people or like, I don't need people. I just need cats. I feel like they've, <laughs> you know, really merchandised this. There's like socks that you can buy mm. that announce how much you hate people. Yeah. And it's become like a sort of cute, trendy, like personality trait that you can now have. And while I think it's hard not to resonate with that sometimes, I think it's also kind of damaging to like lean too hard into that. Sure. Yeah. It bespeaks a greater misery that there is, in fact, something we can do about. Right. Um, right. My way of thinking about this is we need to have humility toward our default settings. We Uh constantly lead ourselves astray with confidence. (laughs) And then we we learn, oh, yeah, that that book does not match that cover. Right, right. So I think of Skip the Small Talk as being very much a community event. I want to get into a couple questions might be of particular interest to Boston-based listeners because I, the event that I attended, I attended a few events at Aeronaut Brewery in Porter Square, and then I think I attended two on Newberry Street. And as Bostonians well know, those are very different parts of the city. I'm wondering if the geography tended to attract different types at all. That's a great question. Yeah, so I would say the Aeronaut is definitely more of a stereotypically a hipster place. And then the one on Newbury Street is definitely more of a like, like it's at a bookstore where, and I think Newbury Street, I think the shops are a little more expensive, like it's pretty trendy. And I think the bookstore itself also draws a more sort of like indie cool audience as well. It's interesting. I think actually one of the bigger factors about the difference between the two is that one is a brewery and the other is just a cafe. We actually Mm, tend to get more folks who are like, likelier to be sober who like come to the Newbury Street events and like that's something that I try and think about like I always like to have at least one sober venue in any city that we're in and sober friendly you know sometimes they can sometimes serve alcohol but something that's not as centered around alcohol just so we can be as inclusive as possible and I know that like the brewery definitely has more folks who have been to the brewery before or like have been curious about going to that brewery and stuff like that so I think there's definitely that bit of a difference, but I also have to imagine from neighborhood to neighborhood, like we're definitely getting some different folks, but I think something that's really struck me is people's 
willingness to travel for this for people who are able I've had people who for quite a while like drove down from New Hampshire um on the regular yeah and like people who would drive from like other states they would like take off work early and they would make it all the way here so like dedication yeah and I mean I think it just speaks to like such a deep need that people have that like is not really getting fulfilled by the existing models of socializing. I would expect a greater difference from location to location, but I think often once people hear about it and once they attend their first one, I think people are often quite likely to just go wherever it's happening as long as it's somewhat accessible to them. It's occurring to me now that alcohol is really a crucial variable. Have you had any issues with that? Uh, Does anyone ever get sloshed at the air (laughs) events? No, I have never seen anyone get too sloshed. I try and be really vocal about, like, please let me know if anyone is making you uncomfortable. Like, we have a safety policy. I have, like, a lot of measures to really encourage people to, like, let me know if there's, you know, anyone there that's giving them a bad vibe or anything. I think people who are more interested in that will tend toward other events. I think, like, we make it pretty clear in the event description that this is really for folks who, like, you know, want to meet new people and want to be a little more vulnerable and want to do it in a kind of fun way. Maybe we've just gotten very lucky, but it hasn't really been an issue so far. Yeah, I think the the way that the event is marketed, I remember going into my first one and feeling like I I wanted to have my mental acuity intact. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to be a good listener. I knew that the questions would require me to delve into memory and mm-hmm. it would be worse and harder, I think, for people <laughs> to be really drunk doing this. It also just occurs to me as we're as we're talking, I'm just thinking about social settings where I've been drinking. This applies more to many years ago. I, I don't drink much at all now, but mm. it's almost like there's a sort of bell curve relationship to the depth of conversation when alcohol is involved you start out and well said yes (laughs) yeah you chat in the in the beginning small talk a couple drinks in you might be getting into more fascinating territory and then a few Mm. more drinks after that you regress into if if it's even small talk it could be you know drunken babbling depending on (laughs) how hard you're going but yeah it's interesting totally totally and it's funny because I think a lot of people assume that the presence of alcohol increases your chances of more meaningful conversations that was certainly anecdotally true of me years ago before I started skip with small talk I remember I was part of this craft beer club because I thought that there would be people there that were like around my age and maybe my some relevant interests that we might have in common but I didn't even like beer. I just did it because I thought um, <laughs> other people would be there who were like me. And I thought that maybe after a drink or two, people would be likelier to talk about stuff that I actually cared about. But I just found that like it was a total crapshoot whether or not that would happen. Right. Some nights like it would just be three hours of like, so how's your job going? <laughs> Pretty good. How's your job going? Pretty good. And some nights we'd be like, God, isn't dating the freaking worst? And like, yeah, you know, it would a renewed just... sense of misanthropy when you get home. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, it would be such a random occurrence, whether that sort of deeper conversation. And so I think it's so, I don't know, it was sort of the thing I also needed in my own life to just have a space that was reliably going to have a high quality social interaction. I think a lot of people go into friend making and dating with the expectation that it's really important to be on the same page in terms of interests and hobbies. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's the case. I think think it's more what questions elicit and then how that spawns a sort of 
meaning and connection. You probably have more research and numbers to speak to whether that is indeed true. But I'm just thinking about my experiences where there's nothing really that's filtering conversations in terms of hobbies or careers or interests. It's just Mm -hmm. people who've gotten together and in some way or another want some social stimuli and some company. But yeah, I don't know. Does that ring true at all? Yeah, totally. I think, you know, often we use hobbies and interests as a proxy for what we hope will be similar worldviews. Will this person get me? Well, I don't have a lot of data on that, but I do know that they like basketball and I like basketball. So like, maybe. (laughs) So I think that's sort of the best (laughs) predictor that like polite conversation allows for without some more structure to it. So I think that's also what sort of cool about this is like you get to connect with people who like you know you've been to every basketball game in your life and I am not even totally confident what the rules of basketball entail and what that ball looks like but maybe we like both have processed our trauma in similar ways or maybe we both have overcome like the same personal difficulty in the last five years maybe we just don't actually have much in common but we're both really eager listeners and that alone is kind of enough for a lot of good relationships so I think also people are just impressively bad at predicting what will make for a good friendship or relationship. (laughs) There's so many friends of mine who would be like nodding in unison with this. It's very anecdotally true. I know there's some research to support that like people are bad at predicting what will make them happy. I'm not sure about research regarding like predictions about friendship or connection, but I have to imagine that's true. And anecdotally, that's like absolutely been true. It's people small talk. People will tell me like, I didn't, you know, I didn't expect to be friends with this person. I've hung out with them like seven times since our last get the small talk. I totally never would have met this person. Like they don't do any of the same stuff that I do, but we've been on three dates and it's going really well. I hear a lot of stuff oh, I like love that. that. It's very sweet to see. And I mean, you know, in some cases, you know, those things in common are relevant, but in a surprising number of cases, it doesn't really matter what your hobbies are. Yeah. Yeah. I want to circle back to academia. What's very exciting is that you didn't go for your PhD, but perhaps you're involved in a published research paper faster (laughs) than you would have been had you gone the PhD route. So tell us about that. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. So I am so excited because my sort of lifelong dream of getting published did end up happening. Not in the way that I thought, though. We had a third party researcher associated with Tufts ask us to to uh, study our online events. And we, of course, said yes. And basically, she found that it reduces loneliness, increases feelings of connection. Going to our event also improves your mood. But my favorite finding from all of that, like those were all like cool, but unsurprising to me, like very consistently, we find that people are in a better mood after people seem more connected after and like are less lonely. So it was nice to have those validated. But I think the thing that really blew my mind was that the more depressed you were coming into the event, the greater the mood boost you would experience leaving the event. So basically, the more depressed you are, the more money's worth you get out of Skip the Small Talk, which was really heartening to see because I think a big concern of mine is that like the population that would most benefit from Skip the Small Talk is probably the population that's most hesitant to come in through that door. It's encouraging to see that at least like the people who are showing up who do experience depression are benefiting a lot from it. And it's really nice to be able to share that with other people to be like, look, you might be the first depressed person to come to this event who doesn't get a lot out of it. But everyone else before you who we surveyed said that they do get a lot out of it and that it improved their mood, even when they didn't expect that it would. So that's wonderful. Yeah, I think that's been really nice to see. 
Can we read the paper? Is it? Yes, uh, thank you for asking. My yeah. favorite question. Um, it is by Jasmine Moat. So Jasmine, J-A-S-M-I-N-E, last name Moat, M-O-T-E. And if you Google that and skip the small talk, that paper will come up. I believe it's in the journal called J-D-I-R. So you can awesome. totally check thank that you. out. Yeah, thank Very you. Cool. So let's talk about the future of Skip to Small Talk. You're having some success. I'm not in the prediction market, but I'll just say hopefully within a year, we're back into a sort of normalcy that doesn't involve masks. What do you have in mind for the coming years with Skip to Small Talk? I, I was thinking, as you just mentioned, um, people becoming friends and people hitting it off as partners. Uh, I wonder if there's going to be an appification of Skip the mm. Small Talk, or I know that there's been some spread to other cities already. What's in the works? What can you tell us about your hopes and dreams for the future of Skip the Small Talk? <laughs> yeah, I love that question. Definitely right now we are, as you mentioned, we are in the process of expanding to a few cities in the U.S., which is very exciting. Um, and so definitely my hope is more of that. My sort of longer term dream is that you could basically go to any city and know that there's a local skip the small talk and if you want to meet people in a specific area you can just go to that skip the small talk and like leave with a friend group basically come so, to scranton please yeah pennsylvania is definitely high on the list so hopefully we'll have one near you soon great <laughs> um so fingers crossed on that i'm sort of pushing against the appification of it i did briefly think it would be cool to do but the more I sort of engage with that possibility, the more I realize that a big chunk of the magic is being face to face when possible and being in person when possible. And having it online, I think also is a close second. But for some reason, with an app, there's some less personal element to it that I think would be hard to capture. And maybe there is a way and maybe if I invested enough time and money in it, like we could find a way to appify it. And I guess I wouldn't be totally close to it as long as we could really still keep the magic of it. Even as I asked the question, I felt ambivalent about yes or no answers, thinking that if you were going with the yes route of appification, I would think, oh, good, great. I hope Ashley becomes a multimillionaire. She deserves it. This is such a cool thing she's done. But the, the, no, the no side of the equation was that I think it would undermine the sort of raison d'etre of, of the whole event in that you would be sort of participating in this sort of digital economy, this digital space that, as we talked about at the top of the call, is contributing to loneliness and disconnection right. where, right, we're just swiping and we're not looking at each other and we're not meeting each other and, and we are feeling filtering just by interests and not by big talk yeah. questions. No judgment if in the future you do end up going with the application <laughs> group. But, but in a way, like as I see it now, I do think it would really subvert some of the sort of core causes. Yeah, I find myself agreeing with that. I think with every year I become more and more invested in like keeping these in person if possible and keeping these online if possible, but with a facilitator who's a human who's doing it live. Yeah, I think there's just some magic to it that I haven't found replicated anywhere else yet. What does community mean to you, Ashley? And, and I guess if I could add one more piece, how has Skip to Small Talk changed your understanding of community possibilities? Mm, I would say like community for me feels like a sort of social safety net. Um, mm. It doesn't necessarily need to be like the main thing you do, but it's for me, I often see it as like a place where like it's reliable and consistent and you just know that like no matter what happens in your life, you can sort of go to this place where people will be there and people will care about you. I think community is also a place to feel seen and understood by multiple people at once, which I think does 
some magic stuff to your brain that like is just not replicable with like one person at a time. Yeah. I sort of think like the OG community is church, places of prayer. Since places of prayer were created, I think every other community has really riffed on that and sort of taken a lot of wisdom from those. It needs to happen regularly. It needs to have a group of people, some of which are consistent, some of which are new. Um, you need people to like notice if you don't go for a long time. You need people to like step up if something bad happens to you. To me, it almost feels like a modern, I think it was called like a secure base or a safe base, like in attachment theory, which is the idea that as a kid, in order to like explore and do all the stuff that helps kids' brains grow, in order to do that, you need a safe, secure, stable place like a parent or a caregiver or someone that you can rely on to be there for you, even if like something is scary. And that's kind of the only way that kids feel comfortable venturing out is if they know that there's something safe and stable for them available. And mm. I think community is basically that for adults. In terms of like how my perspective of all that has changed as I've grown up, as Skip the Small Talk has evolved, really, I think I've had a less narrow view of community. I think I used to think it needs to be people who have stuff in common. I think the hobbies thing I really fell for. I really thought that like you had to have similar interests and similar hobbies. But really, as long as you have similar values, I think that's what it really comes down to. And I think the small talk has attracted people of really similar values, people who value connection, human connection, people who value vulnerability, people who value compassion and self-compassion, because we sort of established all these values at the top of the event. So like, if you're not bought into it, chances are you won't come back, but people yeah. do tend to really like them. So I think people really resonate with them. And so we end up with this lovely group of people who like all share some really core values, but are also different in a lot of ways. Again, going back to what we were saying earlier, like really challenge a lot of your assumptions of what a community can look like. Especially in American culture, we have such a narrow view of like what family looks like, or like who's gonna care if you fall off the face of the earth suddenly, or like who's gonna care if you get really sick. And I think we have really specific assumptions about that and that it's going to be, oh, well, of course, your family or, of course, your romantic partner. But I think I've developed connections with people who are so different from me, all, folks from all different walks of life. And they've really come up to bat for me at times where I've been sort of surprised that, like, you know, you're just friends. Like, how are you willing to, like, show up for me at the hospital? My concept of, like, you know, it doesn't need to all be so centered around romantic partners. It doesn't need to be so centered on biological family. And I think that's been a huge revelation and a huge relief. <laughs> mm, that's fascinating. It makes me think of the very famous uh, Nietzsche quote uttered 150 or so years ago, God is dead. The wave of secularization began that long ago in, in the late mm -hmm. 19th century and has continued until now. And as you say, houses of worship, the OG community structures, you know, it's interesting that it's certainly as someone who was raised Catholic, went to church twice a week growing up and then mm -hmm. didn't go to church at all in college. Mm -hmm. And then it just faded from my life. I was in a city. No one else was really going to their respective houses of worship, mm -hmm. despite most of my friends and colleagues being raised religious. I wonder if there's also like a sort of adult developmental stage, too, where that sort of longing for some kind of spiritual sustenance pronounces itself more. Because mm -hmm. I, I've certainly been feeling it more and more. And on the one hand, the decline in religion has had an inverse relationship with an increase in personal freedoms. And I think that there's a lot that's great about that. 
very broadly speaking. And of course, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the loss of really ancient community structure is also yeah. like just a gigantic hole to fill. And nowhere have I seen um, Skip the Small Talk described as a, as a religious experience. But <laughs> that said, you know, as a, as a kind of secular church, so to speak, it does some of that filling of that gap. It doesn't strike me that there will be, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. I don't look at that topic and think that we need some messianic figure to come and like, mm-hmm. you know, start a gigantic world religion necessarily, but probably we do need more dynamic, diverse forms of community that can have aspects of ritual and ceremony Mm -hmm. and perhaps music and maybe get to some of the spiritual that way. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Oh my gosh. Yeah, this is like such a rabbit hole I can go down. So I'll try and like, you know, not do a whole other hour on this. But um, I, yeah, I actually was part of this very cool fellowship that was led by the Harvard Divinity School and combined Jewish philanthropies. And they sort of gathered together to sort of choose a bunch of people who were doing this sort of secular version of church or sort of reinterpretation of community. And they gathered all those people who were gathering all those, all a bunch of other people. And we sort of got to learn about, like learn from each other and just sort of learn like a little more about what are sort of fundamental elements of ritual, what are fundamental elements of gathering, and it was incredibly useful and just also inspiring to be with all these people who are like the founder of CrossFit was there or like wow. I think the founder of Spartan Races I believe part of this project was like the people who led it did these case studies on places like Soul Cycle and this program where like millennials go on trains in Europe for like weeks at a time just like random things where you wouldn't really see it as spiritual but when you think about it you're like Oh, yeah, like I do go to cycling every Monday and they turn down the lighting and like there's a lighting of a candle that feels very ritualistic. There's a beginning, middle and end that's all very predictable and we know what it's like, but also there's some new elements. And also (laughs) like the teacher knows if you haven't been there for a while, something bad happens to someone who's always been in your class, you'll probably take the opportunity to like band together and do something for them. Like it just has sure. so many of the elements. I think it's really cool that there are so many ways that we're sort of taking the bits and pieces of religion that resonate with us and leaving the rest. But I think in the process, we also have to be so careful that we're not leaving the magical stuff just because we associate it with our own religious trauma. For instance, remember I like grew up um, in Jewish school where like half my day was in Hebrew, half my day was in English. We did prayers every day and I went to temple a bunch. And I just remember like feeling really like I wasn't a part of it whenever there was singing or chanting involved. Even though I knew the prayers, I just didn't like the feeling of singing together in unison. But in reality, you know, if I were to just toss out the baby with the bathwater, I would not realize like the importance of doing something in unison. Like I even was involved in a study on this where like listening to the same audio guide of a painting as somebody else made you feel more connected to them than listening to a different audio guide, but looking at the same painting. Oh, cool. And so, I mean, just the mere experience of experiencing something at the same time as somebody else, I think is a kind of magic that a lot of us have a lot of trauma associated with. But if we don't get kind of 
critical about like, okay, what are the pieces of this that I didn't like and get really specific with it? Like, what was it about it? Was it that I felt like I needed to be in a part of an in-group? Did I feel that like there was some pressure to not look a certain way or not act a certain way? Was that the part I didn't like? And so I think it involves a little more teasing apart of what exactly it is that you don't like about religious communities if you are going to create a community. Because I think otherwise you can run into the mistake of just creating a completely anti-religious community that just has no magic to it. I really like your nuanced description of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I think memory can have this problematic whitewashing effect, which is very adaptive. I mean, right, it makes sense for us to remember what's good and maybe the mildly bad will fade away so that we're not paralyzed by fear as to go forward in the future. But that said, if we're trying to build new systems and structures and community opportunities, in my case, even as you're saying this, I'm thinking about how if I don't think carefully, I would probably think, okay, I really need to be in a big room with stained glass windows and statues, singing whatever song with a bunch of people. But as I'm hearing about your upbringing, you're you're taking me back to my own and I'm thinking, I hated so many of those songs and I was bored. (laughs) I was bored for so many hours in there. So it's not just that we need to replicate exactly what was going on. You know, there could be some nuanced picking and choosing with the important caveat, as you said, that there needs to be some magic. I don't think you can you can totally get there in a purely scientific manner, per se. Religion and science do different things. I don't think of that dichotomy as, I mean, it's often framed as one of these like quintessential debates. It seems to me that we're probably on the same page and that I I think that there's room for them to accommodate each other. But uh, maybe we could save that for uh, future discussions. (laughs) I feel like I do a pretty good job on this show of getting into a whole host of adjacent questions to people's jobs. And then a lot of times, People are still wondering about their jobs. (laughs) So I want to ask you about the current kind of iteration of Skip the Small Talk. So this is your sole or your primary source of income now? Yeah. That's amazing. And for people who aren't from Boston, if Ashley can be paying rent by way of this, (laughs) that's a huge, you're like doing it. You're making it. That's huge. Yeah. I do Um, it with roommates. Even still. Do you have a staff? Do you have a part-time staff, full-time staff? Yeah, I have basically like an army of freelancers who are helping out. And so like I have somebody who's sort of helping me really closely with sort of strategy and expansion and helping me do stuff I've never done before and is much better than me at sort of that specific genre of business thinking. So that's really helpful to have. I also have facilitators in other cities. Yeah, so I do have some folks working for me. And in terms of also like, you know, folks are looking at my events and trying to do the math and being like, well, tickets are just $15. It's not more than 100 people showing up. How does this work? And the answer is we also do corporate events. We do corporate and college events. We do like orientation. It'd be super uh, useful at a college uh, orientation. Nice. Those are some of my favorite events to host. I would have loved that going into yeah. freshman year of college. Yeah. I would have totally loved that. I met like five people on my floor and they became my best friends for four years. Same. Totally. And like, yeah. <laughs> and, like that's great. But like, it would have been cool to meet like, I don't know, five more people. <laughs> exactly. And I know also like college is a very isolating time for a lot of people who aren't lucky to get along with the five people they live on the same floor with. As Skip the Small Talk has grown, we I think we talked about this a little bit on our preliminary call. I, I'm assuming you don't have access to technology that would allow you to clone yourself. Unfortunately, <laughs> there's one Ashley and you, you, you can only be in one space at a given time. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Skip the Small Talk could probably grow at an exponential pace if there were clones of you. But uh-huh. given the technological and ethical dilemmas that that poses... How do you think about your brain 
brainchild having a life of its own. So with the expansion to other cities, you're not always there to facilitate. I'm also not sure if whether you're always the kind of core facilitator at the Boston events still. So how are you feeling about the fact yeah. that you're in this great place to have Skip the Small Talk grow, but that also requires <laughs> you to not control everything? Yeah, you've definitely tapped into like a very real dilemma that I experience on the daily. It feels sort of like how I, I've heard what it's like to be a parent leaving your baby with a babysitter for the first time. <laughs> at your core, you trust them. At your core, you know it's going to be fine. But like you keep remembering little things to tell them like, oh, and also in case this crazy thing happens, here's the person to call. And also if this weird thing happens, here's the thing that you can do about that. So I definitely feel like yeah. I'm in that space with all my facilitators. Where I'm like, oh, and another thing, if this very specific <laughs> thing happens, you know, it just comes to hiring the right people. I do have this whole training video series that basically like if you want to be a scoop small talk facilitator and we think it's a good fit basically you would like watch a whole bunch of videos of my face talking at you explaining some of the core values and what do you do when someone gives you unwanted feedback in the middle of an event what do you do when glass breaks in the middle of your event what would you do if sort of questions as yeah. well as a lot of basic core things that are really helpful as a facilitator to do even if I hadn't put all that together I think all of my facilitators could just host their own vision of a skip of small talk and have it still be wonderful. I think so much of it has to do with the person hosting it. If you just find someone who really works toward the values that we have as skip the small talk, which are like vulnerability, compassion, self-compassion, kindness, generosity. And there's like an official list somewhere, but, and I think a big one is courage. If you're walking the walk, like that's really half of the game. And it's been just an ongoing process for me to just trust that they are going to host this event differently. And that's going to be part of the beauty of it. And already, like before I've had a bunch of these facilitators even hosting, a lot of people have already come up with like brilliant additions and edits to the event that I'm like, oh, that's so smart. I'm going to even change that here in my Boston version of it. I think the more brains on it, the better. But also like it definitely feels like giving my baby away temporarily for the night. Um, <laughs> there's another facilitator in Boston who hosted her first event a few weeks ago and I got to attend it and I was just so proud the whole time of her and just like amazed at her. And, yeah, it's you know, like your child's first recital. <laughs> Exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, I should have brought flowers. I should bring flowers right now. That feels very apropos. But yeah, it was just such a beautiful thing. I got kind of teary-eyed watching her, like, you know, carry on my dreams. That's so, so sweet. Yeah, it is very sweet. Ashley, I have a million more questions, but we're, we're around that time where we should wind down for this call. This has been a delight. I would love for you to tell listeners when the next events are, uh, digitally and in person. But before you do that, anything about anything that you'd like to share before we wrap up? You know, there is actually one thing that I only thought of as you were asking that question. So thank you for asking that. And it's just something I wish more people knew. And it's that everyone I found coming to an event post-COVID, everyone feels a little bit awkward. And nobody mm. notices that anyone else feels awkward. So if you are listening to this and you're going into some social situation and you feel super awkward about it, I can guarantee you, money back guaranteed, that the other person you're socializing with also feels awkward <laughs> and does not notice your awkwardness. <laughs> so that's just something I've seen over and over again that I've been telling all my friends as they tell me that they are feeling weird going back into socializing. That's important. And yeah, definitely worth italicizing. A few months ago, Rosie's 
friend and her boyfriend from Philadelphia came to visit and I had met her friend once. I hadn't met her boyfriend. So I was interacting with someone new for the first time over brunch and it was going really well. I'm extroverted. I like interacting with strangers generally. I don't consider it something that gives me too much fear or anxiety. But mm. that said, dealing with the kind of social rust that I think a lot of us have, I really got in my head at one moment where I think we were talking about music, and I got in my head about eye contact. I started to feel really weird. I was like, oh, gosh, am I, am I making too much eye contact? <laughs> and then, like, the moment you have that thought is, you know, a turning point because I felt that I was making, like, weird facial expressions and, <laughs> and like, probably averting eye contact for too long. And then I asked Rosie afterward, I was like, did, Sabri did Sabrina mention if Nick thought I was a total weirdo? And she's like, no, what are you talking about? They both loved you. It was fine. I was like, oh, okay. That was all so acute within my own skin. Yeah. But uh, I think I, I kind of <laughs> played it off. Yeah, everyone has some version of that story. I'm so glad you shared that. I <laughs> guarantee people are listening like, oh, I had the exact same thing happen. So yeah, definitely, definitely a thing people are feeling right now. And skip a small talk events. So um, we have so many events on the calendar. If you want to check them out, um, it's skipthesmalltalk.com slash calendar, or you could just go to skipthesmalltalk.com and freestyle from there. We also have a blog on there that basically if you liked any of the stuff I talked about today, Chances are you might also enjoy that blog. There's oh, like so a lot good. of content on there. Oh, it's so good. It? I love the oh, mood menu you. post. <laughs> oh my gosh, mood menu so it. cool. Oh, thank you. Well, if you're listening and you're curious what a mood menu is and how it can help you improve your moods over time, you can check out the yes, blog. Perfect. And uh, yeah, oh my God, Pat, I'm so touched that you uh, that you that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was great. This has been a blast. So fun. Thanks. So uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. And be well. Good luck. And we'll talk soon. Thanks so much. You too. Bye. Bye.